begin to stand briefly as we read God's Word together this morning. We're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, the first 11 verses there in that chapter. Let's hear the Word of the Lord together. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are who are dead, that though that though that through judgment, no, I'm sorry, that though judge, excuse me, in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God's supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we continue our study in 1 Peter, and the topic, as you may discern, is about a stewardship of suffering, particularly that sanctification is uh, the process of God giving us a stewardship of suffering. On a wholly different note, yesterday, a man and I celebrated our anniversary. Some of you got that. Some of you did not get that. Um, But... uh, Yes, 17 years of sanctification together. Um, Some might say suffering together. I think some people who know me know that she suffered well during these last 17 years with dealing with me over these years. And do you know what you do on your 17th year of sanctification together in marriage? You go get Mexican without the kids, and then you go to the grocery store and spend $400 on lunch and breakfast foods for the next week of school. That, my friends, is sanctification at its best. Now, why do I make that kind of analogy this morning? Because I think at the end of the day, and as we'll see in his text, Peter's text this morning, it's easy for all of us to find ourselves being consumed in the throes of everyday life, of just the ordinary, right? Like marriage, family, maybe you're not married, doesn't singleness, whatever, jobs, vocations, um, just all kinds of ordinary, everyday life. And it's easy for us as Christians, I'm speaking to Christians here, and Peter's speaking to Christians in this text, to forget the central task of the Christian life. The Westminster Divines define what this um, central aim was in their first question of the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man, they ask? And that is, the chief end of man is to, and if you know it with me, say it with me, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If you want to be a little more specific, you might find that Peter says something uh, more specific to this idea that the Westminster Divines articulated 
as we saw last week, to worship the one true living God, to fight sin, and to make disciples. If you wanted to pair out that name, that wonderful idea, you would find if you look at the Westminster Catechism, that first question, you will find another 195 questions that complement that first question. And it really is about defining what I just said, worshiping God, fighting sin, and making disciples. But it's so easy to forget that task, is it not? I mean, are we honest enough to say that this morning? It's easy to, to, to forget that task. Life will drive us into so much distraction that we forget that in this life of, of, of radical ordinariness, okay, unparalleled ordinariness, we forget that God uses these ordinary means of our lives to sanctify us. And that in these wonderful good gifts and these good realms, as we've talked about in Peter over the last few weeks, God uses them, and sometimes they are struggles, right? They're, they're difficulties. We'll talk about that more as we go along here. So what Peter wants to show us in his text today, as we think about how this relates to all of our lives, no matter what station of life you find yourself in here this morning, is the process of sanctification is carried out through a stewardship of suffering given to the church. Do we understand our sanctification like that? Do you? Because I think we, we kind of glorify, we kind of uh, overly, I want to say overly spiritualize sanctification, we overly idealize sanctification, just get my good cup of coffee in the morning, read my Bible, have my time with Jesus, and all of a sudden, just magically, am I going to be sanctified? But the Bible doesn't talk about our sanctification like that. It says our sanctification, the New Testament envisions our sanctification coming through the very real life and ordinary spaces of life. That's what we're to be. And so that's what Peter wants to show that the Christian this morning, the church this morning, is that our sanctification is carried out through a stewardship of suffering given to us by our God in heaven. So that's my main idea. The church is called to a stewardship of suffering whereby we put to death sin and rebellion in our lives, of course, through the aid of the Holy Spirit, and we live wholly for the glory of God and for the good of others. You hear that? That is the process of sanctification. The stewardship of suffering, where we put to death sin and rebellion in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit, and we give our lives wholly to the glory of God and the good of others. That's what we'll see here this morning. So let's just remind ourselves of where we've been, because you know, I, I, just, I don't believe we can say the Bible without understanding and continuing to enlarge the picture as we go, right? I think that's faithful exposition. And so Peter has had this, lar- we've been in this larger context of Peter's uh, line of thought over the last uh, few weeks. It started way back in chapter 2. Christians are living not in their final home. You know this very well, right? We're living as sojourners and aliens. And Peter's vision is that we would be good representatives of Christ in that space as we engage in good conduct and winsome ideas and then winsome engagement and convictionally connect with our neighbors. That's my summary of that. And that realm that you and I inhabit and the church has been inhabiting ever since Jesus' ascension, it's filled with real struggle for you and I. It's filled with real tension. It's filled with real resistance. It's filled with suffering. So it's right that Peter deals with this topic of suffering in such a robust way in these last, as he's tying up the end of his letter here for these believers. Because if we don't deal with suffering as it is, and understand its role in our lives, we will do something, like we talked about last week, was we'll begin to lose our zeal for our faith. 
We'll have to find it hard to maintain our zeal for our faith and, 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 and attend to the things that God calls us to, what Peter outlined last week, which is what? To, 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 to attend to proper worship together here on the Lord's Day and to defend our faith and defend our hope when the time is right and to love those who God brings us, brings into our lives, um, anyone in a gentle and respectful way. So that's where we are. But he ended in verse 18 or verse 22 or 18 through 22 of chapter 3, reminding the believers that all of that call for zeal for our faith, zeal in our suffering is all grounded in, and it's the larger idea that Peter has been, been working out over the last several weeks of we are vindicated in Christ, and because we are vindicated in Christ, we are called to a, also a suffering lifestyle because we, as we do, we are, and we are keeping our hope sure in his work for us. And so it's that last point, and that point that's been kind of under the main point, right, that you and I will be able to understand Peter's main ideas today's text. Namely, because we are vindicated in Jesus... The Christian does embrace our suffering in our lives, and we do it in two ways. We'll see in the first part of the text, living out our victory in Jesus. That's right. We live out our victory in Jesus. And Second, we live with the end in mind. We live out our victory in Jesus, number one. And second, we live out, we live with the end in mind. So the first point there, living out to the victory, our victory in Jesus, we find in verses 1 through 6. I won't reread them there, but you can kind of, we'll just kind of pick it around here. It says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So what he's getting at there is he's building back on this idea that he's been unpacking over the last few weeks, right? Returning to that principle of 3... 18 through 22, and even going forward so far back as 2.21, he says, the, where he tells us that, this, that, that we are to suffer with Christ in which we are called to that suffering. Peter's been layering under all of our stewardship in the world that we are called to the same task of suffering as Jesus. And Peter knows that the ground for the church to endure in this world is always and only in the suffering of Jesus. He suffered to atone for our sin, and he suffered to set us set for us a supreme example by which Christians must live in the world until Jesus returns. So he says, since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, he says, you must arm yourselves with the same thinking. Dare I say, he is implying, we have a weaponized mind. Arm yourself. Because Christ suffered for you, arm yourself. Weaponize your mind. Weaponize your thinking. I know that sounds radical, but that's the idea here. The only way Christians live with confidence and victory in society is to arm ourselves with the same attitude as Christ. Resolve to obey God as Jesus did rather than sin. Resolve that, that even, even if we see this and, and it makes us and causes us to have to suffer because we must reject that lifestyle. Arm yourself for these things. Again, the, the language of weaponizing our minds sounds a bit crude to the natural mind. It even sounds, by probably modern discourse, a bit threatening. Oh, there you go again, Christian. You're talking about war. You're talking about weaponizing. Even Casey dealt with that even in their first song, how providential that was. Because it is. 
The Christian life is a fight. And to, and to believe it's not is to, is to ignore what is happening around us. It is a fight. The fight to believe in Jesus. It's a fight to hold on to Jesus. Because you and I both know that the world hears us say things like that. Perhaps We know that the world's not short on radicals who weaponize everything, right? Words, ideas, social media, posts, politics, education, whatever. Everything's used to weaponize something. So when we speak of weaponizing our minds and hearts, we're not talking about the same way the world sees it. Our weapons are not of this world. Our weapons are a spirit-filled mind, a spirit-filled heart, a spirit-filled hands and feet. Something that is truly radical to the world. Something that is truly contrary to the way the world understands what war is. These weapons do not damage. I'm sorry, these weapons do the most damage because they aim for the heart. They don't aim for the body. They don't aim to control people. They aim to expose the heart. And there's only one way to do that kind of war, and that's through the, through the Spirit, by arming ourselves, by weaponizing our minds and our hearts through the, through our, through the suffering of Jesus. And when we do this, what happens, right? It, it, it shows us the proper purpose for which we are designed. Look at verse 2. Whoever has suffered has ceased from sinning. So as to live the rest of time no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter's not saying that Christians here are are called to live sinless lives, is he? He's not saying, well, you know, if you you arm yourselves with the proper thinking, you will become sinless. That's not true. Paul has lots to say about that in Romans 6, 7, and 8. But what Peter is saying, because we are arming ourselves with the same attitude of Christ. We're weaponizing our minds in light of all that Christ has accomplished. This is what happens. The Christian embraces the suffering of Christ in his or her life, and they begin to see the deeper and the richer way the victory of Jesus has accomplished for them over their sin. When we do this, we're able to see what sin really is, and we're able to kind of, we're able with the Holy Spirit's help to be able to resist in some sense the power of sin in our life more progressively throughout our life. See, the Christian embraces the reality of suffering in our lives, and it begins to, and when we do this, it begins to help us see the progressive work of sanctification in our life, whereby our minds and our hearts and our hands desire not the passions of the world, right? Not the passions of the world, but the rest, but to rest in the passion of Christ. See the play on words? The passion of Christ is what? His suffering for us. We are rejecting the passions of the world for the passion of Christ. And it is in that whole framework that you and I begin to see a progressive reality of, of change in our life where the hold of sin, the power of sin, holds less and less sway over our lives. And he continues on, for, that, that, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and Lawless idolatry. What a list, right? And he's just telling the Christian, you ain't got time for that anymore. You you, you got to consume yourself in the glories of Jesus and his accomplishments for you. You don't have time for debauchery, right? To live in sensuality. That's, what is that? It's just human hedonism, right? To allow ourselves a full, uh, unabased, 
embrace of food, drink, sex, money, whatever. We don't have time for that. We don't have time for lust. Right? Passions. That's what it means. Lust is passions. It's to be overpowered by our passions. Drunkenness. Drunkenness has the same idea as debauchery or, or, or sensuality, but with the result of being impaired to the point that we're unable to see or act in a manner consistent with our new nature in Christ. Orgies, wild parties of all sorts, but in a mind, but in the reality is, is we're giving ourselves permission in our minds to do to, to give ourselves license in our minds to do such things. And of course, all the rest there. If you've not had the privilege of reading Augustine's Confessions, you should find yourself a modern English version of that. Because Augustine's Confessions could be, which is his personal testimony if you're not familiar with it, is his testimony of how he lived with full-throated abandon to the very life described here in 1 Peter 4. Until, until... It happened one day that he came upon a garden with children playing in it, and they were singing a song that says, Take up and read, take up and read. You know what he did? He took up and read, read the scriptures. And the scriptures, through the work of the Holy Spirit, pierced his heart and converted him by the mercy of God. Peter's saying, although there's a few hundred years between the two, what Augustine understood in his own confession. Now that I have my heart pierced by the grace of God and have been converted by the mercy of God, I now am a living example to what Peter, Augustine would say, is describing here in chapter 4. And that's what every Christian is called to do. To live as a living example of a life and saying, look, the past suffices. You've had your, you've had your day. You've got to grow up and move on. And when Christians choose to not grow up and move on from these things, we are, in fact, thumbing our noses at the grace of God. That is what we're doing. The reality is this, that every Christian has spent enough time gratifying our flesh in our former life, and sometimes, sadly, in our present life in Christ, and we need not waste one more minute doing so. Truth is that Christians still live giving too much power to sin in our lives, do we not? We allow that subtle tempting, the subtle tempting words of the serpent from the garden often ringing in our own ears to the truly converted Christian, you know, right? Did God really say? We let those questions have too much sway. Isn't God holding out on you? Doesn't he want you to, and, he, and doesn't he not want you to know what real enjoyment and contentment is? If he would really want you to know that, he'd let you eat of that tree? Is he really for you? And if he was, he'd let you eat of that tree? What's he hiding from you? This has been the play since the beginning of human history. This has been the play, and it's been the only play. It's amazing how we fall for the play every time, do we not? How easily we fall for the same old play, the same old game. 
But friends, look, the Christian's not missing out on anything. That's the thing. It's like we, we, we think that we're still missing out at times. And, and, and young believers in here, right, Christians, teenagers, whatever, let me just speak to you. You will be tempted, and you will go into your schools this weekend. I'm just going to speak to this since we're all kind of going in full time. You will go into this, and their world will tell you you're missing out. You're not. Sorry, I'm going to go a little youth pastor on you for a second. Did a lot of that. You're not missing out. The Christian is not missing out on anything and need not be fooled by the tired plays from an old, old game that Satan's been playing since the fall. Christ suffered in our place. He suffered in your place and he won the battle of sin over your heart and your mind. You and I are to fight for that every day of our lives until he returns. Christian need not feel that sin has limitless power over our life. Amen? But we do, don't we? We can fall in that place sometimes. I fall in that place more than I'd like to. Christian need not feel, need not feel I mean, so needs to feel confident that they can fight sin in their lives. That's what we need because we can. This fight is going to be an ongoing fight. And Peter knows that. That's the whole context here. Peter knows that, that this, is, this fight's real for Christian sojourners, Christian aliens waiting on Christ's return. R.C. Sproul says it better than I can. We are taught throughout the scriptures that even though, he says, we enjoy the new state of affairs, there remains an ongoing struggle from time to time of our conversion to the time of our glorification in heaven. In one sense, he says, D-Day has already taken place. Histor- historians say that when the Allies landed in Normandy in June 1944, it marked the beginning of the end of World War II. Yet, still to come was the Battle of the Bulge, one of the bloodiest battles of World War II, when the forces of the Third Reich made their last struggle. Our conversion, friends, is like D-Day. He says, The outcome of our spiritual future is no longer in doubt, yet tomorrow might bring for us the spiritual battle of the Bulge. Even though our, these powers and principalities have been subdued by Christ and dealt a mortal blow, they still seek to give us one last battle. And to win it, we need the mind of Christ. We need an armed, weaponized mind. Verse 4, with respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Don't be surprised. Peter knew this then, and we should know it now. Don't be surprised when people are offended by the fact that you are willing to suffer by abstaining from the ways of the world, and they don't understand why you do not join them in this flood of debauchery, and they malign, and they will then malign you. They will mock you for these things. Friends, we should not be surprised. And we, with the response of the unbelieving neighbors and friends who, who, who don't understand why we don't embrace the their godlessness. They don't understand why you don't endorse their personal pursuits of pleasure and contentment. They even mock and malign you and I for it. They will call us hateful for not joining them in it. They'll say you have no compassion if you don't join them in it. They'll say you are bigoted if you don't join them in it. They will say we, they, they call us backward, Right? An out-of-touch reality. They don't understand why we don't celebrate their temporary fads. That's what they are. Common moral focus is just a fad. It will end. It will be destroyed. It will be judged. 
And again, I, I speak to my high school students and my middle school students specifically because it seems to be fully thrust into your lives right now. You're being punched in the face with this today. And I'm begging you. I'm begging you not to buy it. Because it's a lie. Now, lest we fall into a trap of our own making, this is not, because my kids are in public school, this is not just for public school kids. I have seen it as a youth pastor for 20-some years before we started this church. I can tell you with full assurance that I have seen just as many youth grow up to reject their faith in favor, in favor of the flavor of the day and modern morality from all walks of educational spectrum. I'm just telling you. What the church needs to do is unite and support and encourage one another and make sure that we do in the church and we do in the home to, 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 wage, to fight for our kids, moms and dads. Fight for them. I've seen it. Perhaps there's even families in this, in this very room who, who, who knew it more than others. See, parents, we, God equips us to fill the void for our, this void for our children, whichever providence the Lord has set before our families. And he calls all of us to train, to, to catechize our children in the truth of God's word and with the matchless work of Christ on that's it. That's the call. That's the, that's the objective. We attend to these things. God will be glorified. Friends, it's emphatically not true that Christians are out of step with reality. No. It is, in fact, that the Christian has been, who has been filled with the Holy Spirit and been progressively conformed to the image of Christ and formed by his self-revelation of his word, who is actually in touch with the deepest realities of this world. That's reality. And don't forget it. Five, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. To simply put, the judgment of God is reserved for those who mock and scoff and malign his people. In the end, whatever wins, air quotes, the culture gains are temporary. God will, through his son Jesus, rightly judge those who mock and demean his glory and those who live for it. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, verse 6, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way it is. Now apparently, in Peter's, this church was dealing with something that was a common accusation, routinely leveled at the church, and it was something like this. If the gospel is so powerful, and it is about eternal life and getting new life, then how come Christians still die just like non-Christians do? And so it seems to me you're, you're saying a lot of stuff about nothing. So that was kind of a common refrain. So yeah, this gospel is really not that impressive if at the end of the day you're not living in immortality. That's kind of how the Greco-Roman culture kind of um, thought about what real life was all about. If it's real life, your life will get better. If, does that sound familiar to you? Prosperity gospel? It's neo-pagan, by the way. Just same thing. Your life won't always get better. You won't, always, you won't live forever. Not in this particular moment. You will live forever with Christ, with new and glorified bodies. Amen? 
And all they know is that this, this is all they know, that the physical realm is all that, they, is all that there is. And they concern themselves with the momentary pleasures of this world now because they have no concept of what eternity actually is. And so Peter says, this is why the gospel is preached to those who ultimately would die, so that they might live and live the way that God does in the Spirit. In other words, you would be resurrected on that day in the new heavens and new earth when Jesus returns. The gospel is preached to the living, to the living, so that they will ex- and who will still experience death, but only those who repent and believe in the resurrected Christ will, ex- will benefit from that. And those who do not, listen closely, those who do not, the gospel will also be the final death knell in their crypt, judging them all the way to hell. So we must live out this victory with Jesus. But we must also live with the end in mind. And we can kind of see how he's transitioning here in this verse 6 into verse 7 through 11. Because he's been talking about living already, kind of transitioning us into thinking about, hey, you're, you're, preaching, to the, you're preaching now so that even those who will die will experience new life when Jesus returns and when the full consummation of the entire kingdom comes. So then, Peter says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, the question we have in this text is this, and it's an interesting question. Is Peter speaking in an eschatological way? Like, in other words, is he really speaking with the end times, like a future reality in mind? Or is he thinking about has something else in mind entirely? Well, the word end here is actually um, has, much, has much less to do about future reality and more about purpose or aim. Okay? What he's talking about in the end is the final purpose, the final aim is this. The final aim is at hand. So what he's pushing us towards is that what is vitally important is that we... Is that Again, in the New Testament, this is what the New Testament describes, is the church is never really called to focus on like future realities, but present purposes and aims. That's eschatological. Because we know what happens in the end, the reality of this. And so what's happening here, again, R.C. Sproul is helpful, is that in all things, God may be praised and given the glory and dominion that is due his name. That is the eschatological vision of the Bible, full stop. So what Peter has in mind in verse 7 is looking forward to verse 11. Look at what verse 11 says. That God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, and to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So then, let me try to pull it together for us. Yes. Peter does speak eschatologically, but not the way that sometimes we think he is. For Peter, like all Christians, our eschatology is both present and future. Right? It's a both here and then. It is, Peter has in mind, the end of things will result in the proper praise, glory, and honor of Jesus as the king and sovereign over all the earth. And the Christian is to live that way now. Whether that means Jesus is returning in two weeks, a month, or six months, or years, or perhaps 2,000 years. The Christian doesn't 
get into the Bible trying to figure out dates and times and things like that out of Revelation or Ezekiel, as we'll talk about this fall. No, we don't read the Bible that way. We should never read the Bible that way. We read the Bible as saying, now we get the opportunity to do what we will do then forever. That's what Peter has in mind here. Of course, we'll see this more fully in our study in Ezekiel here in a few weeks. I can't wait to get there. Because in Ezekiel, he gives the picture of a final end, a restored Eden, a new and better Eden, a new and better kingdom. We're waiting on the full consummation of that kingdom. So we're living for it now. It's a lot to process, isn't it? But because we now live with the end in mind, that the end is near per se, the church is commissioned now to be living examples of God's purposes for that coming kingdom that centers around his glory. Does that make sense? And so then he spends between 7 and 11 telling us how we're to live. Be alert. Be alert. Be aware, be aware of the subversive powers and realities that, that, that the church will be faced with. Be, be alert to these, to these subversive things that, re, that exist in a sin-stained world. Be sober-minded, the opposite of being drunk. Don't be drunk by the world and able to comprehend anything. No, you are to be sober-minded to the spiritual and, bib- and bib- being spiritual and biblically thoughtful about the things in which we live within and see and face in our day today. Love one another, it says, deeply. Love one another deeply, right? Since love covers a multitude of sins. There is no group of people better and more ready-equipped to deal with sinners than the church. And that's the way we should live. Loving one another and ready to to deal with the, the messes that come in this room. No, what this is not saying... This is not a backhanded way where some Christians will say, well, see, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to just kind of, we don't really need to worry about everyone's sin in the church. Actually, this is the exact opposite. Peter has in mind that we have a body of believers who fight for one another in the midst of their sinful struggles. That's church discipline, by the way. Church discipline is the entire picture of discipleship, whereby we pursue one another when we're not in a room on Sunday morning. We're studying the Word of God in Sunday morning Bible study, and we're in groups with one another and any other number of things. Fellowship and friendship. 30-some people went tubing yesterday. What a wonderful and beautiful thing that was. I didn't get to go. It's okay. But I hope that they had a great time. That's beautiful when the church does those kinds of things. But it should happen. We love one another deeply. We're committed to one another. We're committing to fighting sin with you being patient, persistent in this struggle. We offer hospitality, it says, to one another without grumbling. Ooh, (laughs) without grumbling. That one's tough, isn't it? Because life isn't always easy, and our schedules are not always that malleable, are they? But hospitality requires that we take and receive the opportunities as they are and, and be willing to minister and care for one another as this 
things come. And, and, and hospitality, just in case you didn't know this, doesn't fit nicely into your schedule. I know we'd like for it to, but it doesn't. No, it means lots of things. To share our lives, relation with one another. Share time with one another. Share gifts, that's what it says there. At the end, each one has received a gift. Use it for to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. That's what it means to be hospitable with one another. Financially, giving to those in the church who are maybe having financial struggles or poverty, perhaps, or loss of job. Helping those who will go on mission trips. We hope to have a mission trip to go to next year. We're working on one for 2023. North Africa, perhaps. We want to support our people who want to do that. Uh, plant new churches one day, Lord willing. Assisting in counseling expenses for members who are just in deeper places of hurt and pain. Giving ourselves to one another. That's what hospitality is. It's not just chips and dip. All right? It's, it's giving ourselves to one another. So I began this sermon with an illustration of marriage and family. And I want to make sure I say something here. I understand that though I believe with all my heart, sanctification, God uses the institution of marriage and family as one of the greatest tools, two of the three greatest tools of sanctification in our lives. And it is the typical way God will use, two of the more common ways God will use to sanctify us. But that does not mean that if you're single, that somehow or another your sanctification isn't just as meaningful. You'll have your things. And so everyone else will deal with these things uniquely. But I use that because it is a common realm for most of us. Whatever your sphere uh, is, just know that God appoints believers to a stewardship of something. Why? So that we may be sanctified. He appoints these varying spheres. We saw these back in chapter 2, right? He appoints them so that we may experience suffering for the glory of God. Are, you, are we willing to see that? God appoints suffering for our good. When the Christian sees our suffering for good, we begin to see suffering as a good thing in our life. And I know, I'm not asking you to go out to be suffering hunters here, okay? All right? But the reality is, Apostle Paul called our sufferings momentary light afflictions. Suffering is ordained by God. And the reason why it's important for us is because the world, as we know it, rejects the entire idea of suffering in any shape or form in our lives. I mean, just think about how the world does everything it can to mitigate or limit or even entirely try to utopiaize the entire world we live in so that we don't have to experience pain, that we don't have to experience suffering. Somehow or another, we can, we can overcome all of our shortcomings and all of our struggles and all of our strife. Their idea is that we should always be experiencing security. We should always be experiencing comfort. We should always be experiencing pleasure. We should always be experiencing happiness. This is what we should be looking for as the human race. And so what do they do with the good spheres of life? They change magistrates who are there by God's good design to become basically nanny states. They take vocations that are meant to be, by God's design, ways in which you and I go out there by as God's ambassadors to, to, to create a world and work hard so that others may flourish. But no, what do we turn our jobs into? About our comfort and about our money and about our wealth. And so that's what our world says today. Well, if you, that's how it works. And, that, and again, that doesn't mean they're mutually exclusive. 
Or, or marriage and family. What do we do with marriage and family? Well, marriage is about your pleasure, and it's only as good until that pleasure is not met. You see how women, they manipulate everything into their own image, as Romans 2 says? When we embrace suffering, we embrace an entirely different ethic of life. I love doing premarital counseling. They see this budding romance, and they sit on our couch and everything, and then it dawns on them that they're marrying a sinner. And, we're, and most of all, they start realizing they're a sinner. And when two sinners get in the room, what happens? Rough times. Oftentimes. But again, I remind us to remember the old Westminster question again. The chief in a man is to glorify God, not self. Enjoy God, not self. You want, to, you want to be sanctified. You want to see change in your life. Embrace suffering because when you embrace suffering, you are embracing a life that glorifies God, not yourself. And you are enjoying something other than yourself, which is God himself. So if you're married, your marriage is hard, know that that hard is for the glory of God and for your enjoyment in him. If you're single and your singleness is hard, Know that your that heart is for the glory of God and your enjoyment in Him. If your parenting is hard, know that your parenting is hard for the glory of God and your enjoyment in Him. Need I continue on? I want to read a prayer to conclude this morning from the Valley of Vision. I was struggling on how to land a plane this morning, and I was just praying and asking God to show me this, and I happened upon this prayer this morning called Divine Support from the Valley of Vision. Puritan prayers. Old English, so bear with me. Thou art the blessed God, happy in thyself, source of happiness in thy creatures, my maker, benefactor, proprietor, and upholder. Thou hast produced and sustained me, supported and indulged me, saved and kept me. Thou art in every situation able to meet my needs and miseries. May I live by thee, live for thee, Never be satisfied with my Christian progress, but as, but as I resemble Christ alone. And may conformity to his principles and his temper and conduct grow hourly in my life. Let thy unexampled love constrain me with, into holy obedience and render my duty my delight. And if others deem my faith folly, my meekness infirmity, my zeal madness, my hope delusion, and my actions hypocrisy, may I rejoice to suffer for your name. Keep me walking steadfastly towards the country of everlasting delights, that paradise land, which is my true inheritance. Support me by the strength of heaven, that I may never turn back or desire false pleasures, that thou wilt and, dis and will disappear into nothing. As I pursue my heavenly journey by, the grace, by, by thy grace, let me be known as a man with no aim, but that of a burning desire for thee and the good and salvation of my faith. Amen, church? Let us pray. Father, help us now as we finish our time.